Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. It's the California Report magazine. I'm Sasha Coca. It's been quite a week for my family. My kid got stung by a vicious wasp three times, walking barefoot in the grass. Ah, that hurts, so press on it. I had to figure out how to fashion a shoe out of duct tape for his swollen foot. My other kid had two stressful doctor's appointments this week, and I still had to make a radio show and get dinner on the table and drive them to school. Parenting is the toughest job some of us will ever have. Nobody really tells you how hard it's going to be until you're in deep. Before you have a kid, it's all kind of abstract, like you know your life is going to change, but you don't really get how gigantic those changes are going to be, how your priorities, how your whole sense of self will shift in ways you never imagined. And then throw a pandemic in there. I noticed that my kids' behavior changed where they were really like the worst kids I've seen in my life. They were cussing, they were hitting, they were biting, they they would lash out. Today on our show, we're going to hear from a couple of parents about the ways they've been forced to stretch. We need our own space to process what it's like to be a parent with multiple stressors, trying to get it all right, trying to figure this out, surviving in a really difficult situation. We should also be open to our own mental health. We're going to start the show with a story about what it's like when you're a dad and your firstborn son goes off to college. That just happened for Adolfo Guzman Lopez, who's covered higher education for years for KPCC in Los Angeles. When his own son moved into his freshman dorm this month, Adolfo was not prepared for the reaction he'd have. Time has gone by way too quick. Hi, my name is Jordan, and I'm going to say a really sad story that my violin teacher told us. That's my son, my first child, when he was eight years old. This is him a few weeks ago. Hello, this is Jordan Guzman. I'm in the car with my father, Adolfo Guzman Lopez. We are en route to my college orientation. Oof, so many feelings on that car ride. But I didn't have words or phrases to describe them, just images. His favorite Mr. Octopus toy when he was a newborn, Me sitting in a camping chair behind the Little League backstop, watching him take pitches. I feel like it's the end of something for me and him. But to cut down the anxiety, I tell myself it's also the beginning. Of what? I don't really know. So I started talking to other fathers of firstborn sons. 
when I sent my son off to college, I think I might have actually been clinically depressed. I just felt so uh, sad, and I missed him so much. Robin Perry says that after a few weeks, an evolution in their relationship began to take hold. Not merely just sort of a father-son relationship, but it evolved into a more of a a friendship, more of a advisor uh, type relationship. Some fathers may feel they don't understand all that's involved in college, finances, career planning, social life, and they may say, son, I can't help you with that. Derek Broom says fathers can still show up in other important ways. He's a professor of Africana Studies and Sociology at the University of Tennessee. And I think one of the things that really gets left out of the discussion is the non-material resources and support that fathers can offer, such as uh, a confidant, a guiding voice, a a supporter in terms of social-emotional well-being. Broom says community groups and educational institutions should do more outreach to fathers because doing so may help turn around a troubling trend. There's a drop in the proportion of males enrolling in college, and those who do struggle to reach graduation day. What does father-first-son support look like now? I paid a visit to the Bradford family in L.A.'s View Park neighborhood to find out. Hello, how are you? All right, just... um... (laughs) Looking at uh, UC Berkeley Unit 3 housing. (laughs) Lawrence Bradford is watching a dorm orientation video on YouTube. You should also know this. He's a community college admissions administrator. And that's reflected in what his son Miles says his dad has been telling him the last few weeks. I think he's, you know, he's just been reinforcing everything he's been telling me for the past, what, uh, 17 years. Uh, Stuff like hard work, obviously, keep keep going hard. Uh, College is a little different, so, I mean, I just got to keep going harder. His dad also reminded him what it means to be a young black male around the police, in parties with alcohol, and while dating. Lawrence Bradford says he did not have this kind of conversation with his father. I lost my dad when I was 12. My dad didn't get a chance to show me how to shave. My dad, you know, wasn't there to see me in my athletic events. There was one thing I did not hear from Lawrence and his son Miles. What will their future relationship look and sound like? Maybe it was the pressure of getting ready for that long drive to Berkeley. Which brings me back to my car ride with my son Jordan to his college orientation. I told him, I'm afraid of the unknown. What will the relationship between him and me be like? Who's going to support me? I think I'm confident that it'll, it'll be all right. You know, that it'll, I think he'll definitely be very supportive. And I think that'll play a role in, you know, keeping keeping us close. Good. Maybe, maybe uh, I, I'll, I'll tap into your confidence then. <laughs> that was Adolfo Guzman Lopez, who, in addition to being Jordan's dad, also covers higher education for KPCC in Los Angeles.
Next, we're going to meet a mom from East Palo Alto. Her name is Jasmine Cuevas, and she's spent years trying to help her kids cope with anxiety and trauma. They're among a growing number of kids across California who are struggling with emotional and mental health. Experts and policymakers have called the situation a crisis, one that was brewing before the pandemic, but it intensified when schools shut down and kids spent months isolated from the outside world. KQED reporter and producer Blanca Torres has been looking into kids' mental health as part of a USC Health Journalism Fellowship. Blanca found that both before the pandemic and now, most kids who need help for mental health issues don't get that help. She also discovered what happens when families like Jasmine's can access care. And a quick note, this story mentions some sensitive themes, so please take care when listening. I'm Jasmine, and we are currently at my house with all my children, all four of them. And I'm just here trying to make them some dinner. You know, we got out of work and got them from school, and we come straight home, and it's a wreck. (laughs) Dinner, homework, reading, baths, and then bedtime by 7.30, the latest. Jasmine spoons servings of fried tortilla chips scrambled with eggs onto her kids' plates. At one point, Jasmine and I moved to the living room so she can talk more openly about some of the challenges she's had with two of her kids, her nine-year-old and her seven-year-old. And by the way, I'm not going to use their names to protect their privacy. Jasmine tells me she's been concerned about their mental health since her oldest was in preschool. In class, they were often anxious, would talk out of turn, not pay attention or follow instructions. Her other child would often get violent, hitting siblings or anyone around. Sometimes they cried inconsolably. The kids had some support through a mental health consultant at their preschool. But as they got a little older, Jasmine realized they needed more help. And Jasmine's life was getting more complicated too. Three years ago, she left an abusive marriage. Her kids struggled with the change, while Jasmine struggled to find them a stable place to live. I noticed that my kids' behavior changed. Where they were really, like, the worst kids I've seen in my life. They were cussing, they were hitting, they were biting, they, were, they would lash out. Jasmine thought therapy might help her kids. She told them, You need to talk to someone, let's talk to someone, they're nice. Turns out a growing number of families faced similar emotional and behavioral challenges in the decade leading up to the pandemic. The CDC reported one in five children ages 3 to 17 struggled with emotional and mental health problems. We don't have updated data yet for the pandemic years, but experts say the numbers are climbing. Like we've made a toxic culture for children to grow up in. And over the last 10 to 15 years, we've seen that show up in a doubling of inpatient admissions for self-injury and suicide, leapfrogging, cancer, and car wrecks as a cause of death. That's Alex Briscoe. He's a principal at the California Children's Trust, a nonprofit focused on reimagining California's approach to children's mental health. So the broader question for us is, what will we do as a culture when we come to consciousness about the fact that twice as many of our kids are trying to kill themselves? Briscoe's group is working to bring more wellness programs into schools and expand access to mental health care. 
because Briscoe says most kids who need mental health care don't get it. The two biggest barriers? Cost and lack of therapists. Medi-Cal, California's state-funded insurance program for low-income people, does pay for mental health care services, including therapy. But of the 5.3 million kids enrolled in the program, only 5% have received care. Jasmine's family was part of that lucky few. And unlike some parents who are afraid or distrustful of seeking help, she was eager for her kids to go to therapy. That's because she knows how much it helped her. Jasmine's 29, and she remembers briefly seeing a therapist when she was about eight or nine years old. Loved it. Loved it, loved it. She was so nice. She was so understanding. Jasmine recalls growing up in a home she considers emotionally and physically abusive. I never used to express myself at all. You know, I always kept shut, and in my little world, I had a hard time. Nobody ever listened to me, and when they did listen to me, oh, you're lying. After a few sessions with her therapist, her mother abruptly stopped taking her to appointments. Jasmine says her mother never explained why that happened. And I really missed her. It was really hard because now I'm like, great, I'm back to my, to my little bubble in my corner of the darkness and not knowing what to do. But she never forgot the feeling of having someone in her life she could trust who listened. Jasmine became a mom at 20, but her marriage which she says was emotionally abusive, ended soon after. She remarried and then went on to have three more children. Her second husband was also abusive. She briefly lived in her car after that relationship fell apart. Jasmine remembered how much therapy had helped her when she felt so lost. And here she was again. She recalled the mental health consultant who had worked at her kid's preschool and reached out to her for one-on-one therapy. Through healing ourselves, we heal our children. That's Gabriela Buendia. She says when addressing the mental health needs of children, some parents also need therapy. If we need our own space to process what it's like to be a parent with multiple stressors, trying to get it all right, trying to figure this out, surviving in a really difficult situation, we should also be open to our own mental health. Jasmine said the process of setting up therapy for her kids was relatively simple. She went to a county health office to request an appointment. I went through four therapists before we found the right match. I didn't give up. Both kids saw a therapist once a week over Zoom. Their sessions often involved games and activities. Buendia says a couple of factors made a difference for Jasmine's family. One is that her kids' preschool had Buendia on staff as a mental health consultant who looked for warning signs. The second is that Jasmine learned how to advocate for her children. Many parents, Buendia says, either don't have access to the system or don't know how to navigate it. I admire this mom so much. She's overcome so many obstacles and trauma and and yet is still so connected to her feelings and is vulnerable and is so connected to her children. She's, She's incredible. In February, Jasmine found stable housing in a townhome. Like many parents, she had to stop working at the start of the pandemic to care for her kids. But she's back to work full-time in food service at Stanford University. And she recently got married again. I'm finally in this great relationship with a person who loves my kids, loves me, treats me the way I need to be treated. My kids are happier than ever. I'm not going to lie, I have a lot of anxiety. I have a lot of panic attacks. I'm working on that. I'm working on it. 
Therapy has helped Jasmine communicate better with her children. In the past, she says she worried more about cleaning her home than taking the time to connect with her kids. Now she makes sure they eat meals together and talk before bedtime. It's amazing how much trauma and how much hurt we have in our family, but there's hope. You know, with therapy, you have that hope. Jasmine says she wants her children to have a different experience than she had growing up, to feel free to express their needs and emotions. For The California Report, I'm Blanca Torres in East Palo Alto. Blanca's story was produced as part of a project for the USC Annenberg Center for Health Journalism's 2022 California Fellowship. And now to a story from a granddaughter about the loss of her family's farm in Rancho Palos Verdes. Writer Caroline Hatano brings us an ode to the Japanese-American community that once farmed all over Southern California. Her story comes to us as part of a collaboration with Civil Eats, which is a daily news source for critical thought about the American food system. Here's Caroline. For most of my 20s, I fantasized about working on a farm. I'd wake up with the birds and spend most of my time outside, learning about things like soil, pests, and tractors. The plants themselves would teach the more conceptual subjects on tenacity and growth. This version of myself would be more attuned to nature and to herself. The kind of knowing that I imagined could only come from true solitude, away from technology and the white noise of everyday life. I didn't realize it then, but my daydreaming wasn't just a coping mechanism. It was largely a yearning for connection with my Japanese heritage and the side of my family I share it with. They'd been farming in California since immigrating. And growing up, our relationship had mostly boiled down to annual pleasantries. Aside from my grandma, my bachan, she always showed up at my horse shows and volleyball games with a bag of salty tengu beef jerky in hand. Last year, on the brink of turning 30, I finally hit pause on the college to corporate America pipeline to work on a vegetable farm. At my 9-to-5 job, I'd been a senior editor at a small content agency. But on the farm, I was just another apprentice wearing Carhartt plastering bandages on my cracked hands. Each week, we'd seed new plants in the greenhouse, transplant young ones out in the fields, and harvest as fast as we could. Every Wednesday, we packed boxes for the weekly CSA in an assembly line, usually with the Alabama Shake song, Hold On, setting the pace. Before I ever even touched a harvest knife, I knew my favorite crop would be sunflowers. I loved getting lost in the towering rows, tilting each sunny stalk down to check how many petals had popped, stumbling to the truck with as many as I could sling across each arm. With each harvest, I was reminded of my grandpa, my Jichan. Some 70 years ago, he'd sized up his newly leased plot of land and decided to gamble on the very same flower. His farm had been in Rancho Palos Verdes, a coastal LA suburb straight off a tourism poster, with dramatic rolling hills and cliffs to match. When I talked to my dad, Dwight Hitano, about my Jichan, we agree that his passion for farming was always clear. I mean, Jichan was obviously very proud to be a farmer. I don't think that that was ever really like a question for me growing up. He loved it so much. Yeah. And 
you know, Jichang, his whole being was, you, you don't brag, you don't talk about yourself, but you could tell he was proud of what he did and then the product he was putting out there. You know, the happiest place was when he was at, the, for him, when he was the happiest was always being out at the farm. Yeah. And, you know, that's, that's what was his purpose in life, his reason for, for living. My Jichan died in 2015, well into his 80s and just a year after retiring. I had a kind of awakening when I realized I'd missed my opportunity to connect with him in a meaningful adult way. Not long after I wrapped up my apprenticeship, I learned that his farm, which had continued to operate, would soon be forced to close. Like many farmers in the U.S., he'd rented his land and the city was terminating his lease. For my family, it meant the end of an era. But his farm also happened to be the last Japanese-American founded farm on a peninsula that was once home to hundreds of them. And this past summer, it closed forever. Probably my first memories are working at the ranch with my dad and going out there on Saturdays, um, which was, you know, that was kind of our family time, family day. I grew up hearing stories about what the peninsula used to be like back when it was crowded with strawberry and garbanzo bean farms run by Japanese-Americans. You know, as little kids, we, because the, the farms were so close, we just ride our bikes down there and um, run in there and start helping out. You know, we, we thought we were helping out. Or if they were out in the fields, we'd go and pick tomatoes or pick strawberries with the workers. Sometimes my dad and his siblings would go pigeon hunting as a low-tech method of pest control. Or they'd join another farm kid named Satoshi on the combine, a sort of tractor-like harvesting machine. Satoshi would drive the, the combines with the garbanzo beans, and so they'd cut the garbanzo beans and feed it into the combine, and it would throw shell them into the back. So we used to go there, and I'd go running after him, and he'd stop and let me climb up, and uh, we'd ride with him. On, and those were, that was usually on Saturdays and Sundays, you know, because it was the weekend. Now the area is home to a Trump golf course, a luxury resort, and neat rows of identical houses. All thanks to the Japanese-American community who'd been working the land since 1882, transforming it from desert into fertile farmland. Together, many of the farmers pioneered dry farming techniques that are still in use today, as California's climate only continues to get hotter and drier. Despite anti-Asian land laws that kept them from owning farmland until 1952, Japanese farmers managed to be incredibly successful up and down the West Coast. By the 1910s, they were already generating 16 million of the $25 million flower market business in LA, which is where my Jichan eventually ended up raising sunflowers in baby's breath. He was very prideful in, in the fact that his baby's breath, it was wider, the flowers were wider and bigger. And so you compare them to other growers baby's breath and it just wasn't the same and that's why you know his was so much in demand. Of course all that progress was interrupted in 1942 when 120,000 Japanese people on the west coast were incarcerated in concentration camps. Most of them were American citizens and it was white growers who benefited from the subsequent price spikes due to crop shortages. It's no coincidence that today white landowners still control an estimated 98 percent of farmland in the U.S. In the subsequent years of incarceration, many Japanese Americans lost their land, had equipment stolen, and were forced into agricultural work in the camps. After the war, the USDA estimates that Japanese farm ownership, including leases, dropped to less than a quarter of what it had been. 
My Jichan had been incarcerated in the Poston, Arizona camp as a teenager, eventually leaving his family to help fight the war against Japan. In the meantime, my great-grandparents relocated to the L.A. area after hearing about its Japanese farming community from friends at camp. It wasn't until the 50s that my Jichan leased his peninsula plot from the military. When Rancho Palos Verdes was incorporated some 20 years later in 1973, part of the agreement mandated that the land he was farming be converted to recreational use. Whether it was out of guilt, respect, or plain old bureaucratic disorganization, the city allowed my Jichan to renew his lease anyway until 2014. That was the year he retired and transferred the lease to Martin Martinez, who had started working with him at the farm as a teenage immigrant from Mexico. Allowing his legacy to live on through Martinez would have been especially meaningful, as he represents another oppressed community that forms the backbone of California agriculture. When my Jichan's lease expired this summer, with it went our community's only tangible tie to the land we nurtured and made viable. Land that provided Japanese Americans with livelihoods, camaraderie, and an anchor in times of great turbulence and terror. And although the city is pursuing a historical designation to try to preserve that history, it doesn't feel equitable in any sense. A plaque doesn't maintain a sense of place. And this story isn't singular, which naturally leads to a string of what-ifs. If Japanese Americans had never been sent to prison camps, if we didn't continue to face discriminatory laws after the war, if we hadn't suffered devastating economic setbacks, would my Jichan have been able to buy land? Would property ownership alone have dramatically changed California's agricultural landscape? Of course, leasing farmland is still common practice today. According to the USDA, more than half of cropland in the U.S. is rented. One of the biggest barriers to entry for new farmers is an inability to acquire land. And because many white families already own land in some form, farming remains a white industry. The hierarchy, with white landowners at the top and immigrant laborers at the bottom, stays intact by structural design. Before I started my apprenticeship, I wondered if one season would be enough to fulfill my farming fantasy. Now, a full year out, I often find myself drifting back to the easy routine of last summer, of spending all day with my hands in the dirt, playing Marco Polo in the sunflower fields, of driving home with the windows down, smelling like sweat and tomato plants. Farming offers an opportunity to feed people, but also to build collective knowledge, establish traditions, and honor shared history, and eventually, I hope, to challenge the status quo. One of the things I like most about farming is that you're always building on your own work. Over time, you create the kind of soil you want. Each season, you review last year's notes and make adjustments to improve yield. It's a practice that rewards patience. In some ways, turning soil over is almost like burying our dead. Cover crops and sunflower stalks become food for the next generation, which means that long after you've left land behind, there's always evidence you were there. So although my Jichan's farm might no longer physically exist, in every plant that blooms up and down the peninsula, there will be a small piece of him and the community he belonged to. And that's something no one can take away.
writer Carolyn Hatano. Her essay about her grandfather's farm in Palos Verdes comes to us through the nonprofit news organization Civil Eats. And that's the California Report magazine for this week. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Victoria Mauleon is our senior editor. Susie Racho is our producer-director. And our sound engineer is Brendan Willard. Our team also includes Alex Hall and Jessica Carissa. Special thanks this week to Catherine Stifter, Ethan Toven lindsay Susan Davis, Beth LaBurge, and Otis R. Taylor Jr. I'm Sasha Coca. This is the California Report magazine. Your state your stories. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.